BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. I'll be picking up your calls in just a second here. Mike McFreely of Fargo, North Dakota, wrote up a what was apparently a local post. I saw it reposted over at Democratic Underground a few days ago. It was titled, Why Are Republicans Afraid? And he said, you know, Republicans are afraid. They're afraid of black people. They're afraid of brown people. They're afraid of red people. They're afraid of yellow people. They're afraid of women. They're afraid of young people. They're afraid of young people voting. They're afraid of people of color voting. They're afraid of voting rights. They're afraid of democracy. They're afraid of science and medicine and knowledge and public education and universities and professors and most of all teachers. They're afraid of experts. They're afraid of doctors. They're afraid of Anthony Fauci. They're afraid of masks. They're afraid of vaccine. They're afraid of vaccine passports. They're afraid of things that don't exist like vaccine chips. They're afraid of history. They're afraid of the truth. They're afraid of those who tell the truth. They're afraid of wind towers. They're afraid of solar power. They're afraid of conservationists. They're afraid of the Green New Deal. They're afraid of Greta Thunberg. They're afraid of change. They're afraid of the media. They're afraid of the New York Times and the Washington Post and MSNBC and CNN. They're afraid of Democrats. They're afraid of Black Lives Matter. They're afraid of Antifa. And they're afraid of Democratic Socialists. They're afraid of Bernie Sanders and AOC and Elizabeth Warren and Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama and Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney and rhinos, oh my God. They're afraid of athletes and kneeling. They're afraid of the NFL and Colin Kaepernick and the NBA and LeBron James and Major League Baseball. Republicans are afraid of Hollywood. They're afraid of actors. They're afraid of Academy Awards. They're afraid of musicians. They're afraid of Grammys. They're afraid of Broadway shows and late night comics and Saturday Night Live. They're afraid of Coke and Delta Airlines, for goodness sake. They're afraid of Mexicans. They're afraid of Asians. They're afraid of Muslims. They're afraid of Somalis. They're afraid of caravans. They're afraid of refugees. They're afraid of migrants. They're afraid of diversity. They're afraid of homosexuals. They're afraid of bisexuals. They're afraid of same-sex marriage. They're afraid of transgender people. They're afraid of transgender kids. They're afraid of bathrooms. They're afraid of big cities. They're afraid of coastal cities. They're afraid of Chicago and Portland and Minneapolis. They're afraid of California and New York and the blue states and Washington, D.C. becoming a state. Oh, my God. They're afraid of the world. They're afraid of social justice and equality and fairness 
They're afraid of elites and academics and intellectuals. They're afraid of Planned Parenthood and Obamacare and Medicare. He wraps it up. He goes, it must be exhausting. (laughs) Yeah. Which raises kind of my rant today from HartmanReport.com that the modern Republican Party is, and now in retrospect, we can say really since 68, but particularly in the last five years, has at its core, its principal devotion, its principal principle, as it were, its main principle, is white supremacy. Period. Full stop. And the thing that is driving them right now is this whole great replacement theory, which was what was behind the Christchurch killing in New Zealand, which was what was behind the El Paso massacre uh, last year or uh, two years ago. It was behind uh, Tim McVeigh. It was behind the guy in Norway who shot up the children's camp. In every case, it comes back to this. This is the the major driving force now in the Republican Party. And I I start out the op-ed talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene. She just raised $3 million. And, you know, a good haul for a freshman congressperson is a quarter million to a half million bucks for the first quarter that they've been in Congress. And that's assuming that they're doing something, that they're getting in the news, that they're reaching out to their constituents. But she blew the doors off. Three and a half million or $3.2 million? Why? There was a time in America when conservative meant in favor of moving toward a better country, but doing so cautiously and slowly. I think that time... The death knell of that time was in 1957 with a William F. Buckley editorial, which I'll get to in just a moment. And the actual realization of the end of conservative meaning that was 1968, when Richard Nixon used his Southern strategy and fully embraced after the Democratic Party in 64 and 65, openly, nakedly rejected white supremacy in the South with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and and numerous other pieces of legislation including Medicare, which was principally opposed by white Southern senators who were concerned that Medicare benefits would go to black people. This has been at the core of all conservative opposition to any kind of a national health care system in the United States since it was first proposed by Teddy Roosevelt in 1902. White supremacy has become the principal brand I realize we have, you know, a a lot of listeners who are younger and not my age, but just, you know, take it from an old fart like me. From 1966 to 1999, there was this show on PBS every Sunday. It was called Firing Line with William F. Buckley. And this is a big deal. 33 years of television. It had a massive influence on America. And every week, Buckley would go on TV and he would talk about, you know, conservative values and conservative this and conservative that. My dad and I used to watch this show together, probably until the day it ended. I was uh, long gone but uh, and out of the state by that point. But uh, I'm guessing he was still watching it. Well, Buckley laid out exactly what he was all about a couple of years before he got that TV show. It was 1957. And he had just recently started National Review, which is still around. It's, it's the premier conservative publication. And he wrote an op-ed in 1957 
in the National Review titled, Why the South Must Prevail. Let us, uh, let us speak frankly, William F. Buckley wrote. The South does not want to deprive the Negro of a vote for the sake of depriving him of the vote, end quote. So it wasn't just about malice. It, just wa- it wasn't just about performance. This was about power, about using the power of the state. And, and, and once and for all, defining this core animating principle of this newly resurgent conservative movement as being white supremacy. Buckley goes on, in some parts of the South, the white community merely intends to prevail. That is all. It means to prevail on any issue in which there is corporate disagreement between Negro and white. The white community will take whatever measures are necessary to make certain that it has its way. And then Buckley, in this editorial, he kind of asks rhetorically, kind of asking himself, if the South has the, is entitled, his word, entitled, to prevail, his word, even in black rural areas or in large cities with majority black populations. And he responds, he says, yes. He said, the sobering answer, Buckley wrote, is yes, the white community is so entitled because for the time being, it is the advanced race, end quote. So if you have any doubts why Marjorie Taylor Greene raised uh, over three million bucks, it's because she's flying the white supremacist flag, the Trump flag. The Trump brand is all about white supremacy. I mean, you know, when she rolled out her candidacy back, you know, last year, um, this is in the state where Louise and I lived for 13 years. I mean, you know, I know Georgia. And she rolled out this series of videos complaining about an Islamic invasion of, a, of elected office. Well, that was probably Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. And was conflating black and Hispanic men with gangs and dealing drugs. And then she was hustling this 2020 version of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, saying that Jewish billionaire George Soros had something to do with Nazis and was controlling world events. And let's not forget the Jewish space lasers. I mean, this was so offensive. The Steve Scalise of Louisiana, the, the number two Republican in the House, who years ago described himself as, quote, David Duke without the baggage, end quote, endorsed her primary opponent. So that's too much for me. Congressman Jody Heiss, one of another you know, well-known conservatives out of Georgia, said no. He withdrew his endorsement. But nonetheless, she won the primary and then she won the general election using Trump as this symbol of white supremacy. But Green, you know, this is not all about Marjorie Taylor Green. She's not the problem. She's one, just one of many. And a symptom of how widespread and how popular this white supremacy and white nationalism ideologies are in today's America. They have become the number one animating force in the GOP. The Chicago Project on Security and Threats did a deep dive into which counties in America sent people to the January 6th um, attempt to end our our republic uh, in Washington, D.C. And the project's director, Robert Pape, wrote, quote, The people alleged by authorities to have taken the law into their hands on January 6th typically hail from places where non-white populations are growing the fastest. And then he, he adds, One driver overwhelmingly stood out, fear of the great replacement. 
the great replacement. This is why Tim McVeigh blew up the federal building. It's, it's why the guy in El Paso slaughtered 20 people in a shopping center. This is the, the fear that was endorsed by Tri- Tucker Carlson this week on Fox News of white people being replaced by people of color. And using that hook, the Republican Party has explicitly rebranded itself, particularly in the last five years. It was always implicit before that. In the last five years, it has become explicit. And, you know, with you know, we got to have conservative general statues and we can't take the names off military bases and, and uh, uh, cities like Pittsburgh, Detroit and Milwaukee with large black populations. They must have voter fraud. It's amazing. I'll, I'll, I'll finish this in just a minute. This is the Tom Hartman program. And of course, I'll be picking up your calls, whatever you'd like to talk about. We can get into it. Stick around. Yolanda in Spanaway, Washington. Hey, Yolanda, thank you for listening to KBCS. What's on your mind today? Hey there, Tom. I listen to, I've been listening to you now for almost going to be 10 years, and thank you for everything wow. you do. And I want thank to you. thank you because now I'm running for school board. I got active. Mm-hmm. I am now part of the vice chair of my second of my, my legislative district. I got in another with another Democratic women's group because... We can't complain without doing something. And thank you with your words, constant, constant. And my friends, I'm doing it. I'm getting That's after great. it. Thank you so much. God bless you. <laughs> so <laughs> tell me about how you're getting active, Yolanda. Well, I joined the legislative district and somehow got reeled into being a vice chair because they're destroying Whoa. my neighborhood uh, environmentally. I called you along mm-hmm. a couple of years back, and you introduced me to CELDEF, and we were talking about that, uh, the Growth Management Act, which is a mm-hmm. state act that's only in Florida and in Washington, so they can take all our wonderful land away and do what they want with it. And so I had, I had to get involved because it's encroaching on my space. That is great. Horribly. So... So what, what, what is your advice for somebody who is thinking, you know, really I should get involved in this stuff, but I don't know where to begin. What do you do? How did you, how did you begin? It's, you know, you, it's a hard space. It's a hard space. You have to just stop, not look at all the obstacles and say, I can, I can you know, know within yourself what your limitations are and what you can do. And then you mm-hmm. reach out to the, the core group that is around you that says, that's honest and true and says, you can do this. And they're going to support you. And yeah. then you trust and you move on. Again, it's a hard space. It's trust with people because you're doing the right thing. That's, that's wonderful. Yolanda, I, I'm going to move along. But thank you so much for the call. And thanks for your great story. Thank you. Is, you you're the one that got me in this business. Okay. It's your fault. It's your okay. fault. <laughs> Thanks, Yolanda. Thank you so much. Great talking with you. Thank you. Hey, Gary. Uh, excuse me. Thank you, Yolanda. Gary in Sunrise Beach, Missouri. Hey, Gary, what's your what's on your mind? Hi. I'm looking for some information about the Medicare Advantage plan. I am on one, and I hear you say how bad it is. How do I get off of it? How do I get back onto just Medicare? 
you, oh wow, you know, I've never gone through that process. I know Congressman Pocan tried doing that with his mother. I'm not sure if he was successful or not. Um, because once you, it, it, I think it depends on whether you initially signed up for Medicare or not. But I, the thing to do would be to call your Social Security office. You know, there's, there's phone numbers on, uh, or your Medicare is administered by Social Security, so typically you have to go through Social Security. And uh, just call them up and ask them. And when you find out, would you call me back? <laughs> Let me know. Uh, I can do that. Okay, great. Yeah. It. Uh, it, all the phone numbers should be online, you know, and you should be able to check it out. Yeah. And Gary, I'd love to hear your experiences on this. It's uh, uh, from the pieces I read in the New York Times, and I've shared it on the air. It can be a challenge, but there's also wow. apparently ways to do it. Gary, thanks a lot. Good luck. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Today we're reading from The Truth About Social Security. The founder's words refute revisionist history, zombie lies, and common misunderstandings by Nancy J. Altman. This is from chapter 5, page 239. It's titled, In the Immortal Words of Yogi Berra. This is deja vu all over again. The last chapter ended with a call to expand Social Security, consistent with the Founder's vision. Whether to increase or decrease Social Security's modest benefits, whether to add new protections or take current protections away, and whether to retain or change Social Security's fundamental structure are questions of values and collective choice. An overwhelming majority of Americans have always supported Social Security, valuing the basic security it provides by pooling risk. They understand that there are some undertakings that the government does better than the private sector. Security, both physical and economic, is one of them. To promote economic security in this world, and indeed around the world, government-sponsored insurance has proven to be extremely effective. Indeed, more than 170 countries have enacted their own version of Social Security. Americans appreciate that our Social Security system's benefits are earned and that work is a condition of their receipt. 
Indeed, the values that underlie Social Security are basic American values. Reward for work, individual responsibility, shared participation, risk and benefit, responsible, prudent financing, and protection of our families. Those of us who want to see Social Security remain strong and see its modest but vital benefits expanded can triumph as long as we are engaged and informed. To win, we must be vigilant, hypersensitive to the goals and tactics that those who would like to see our Social Security system dismantled brick by brick. Though opponents' tactics have changed somewhat over time, their goal has been constant. This chapter will analyze in detail both the goals and tactics of opponents throughout Social Security's history. So supporters of Social Security are well-informed and armed. A small minority has always believed that all but the neediest individuals should be completely on their own and has long fought a campaign against Social Security. People holding those views want, as lobbyist Grover Norquist vividly remarked, quote, to shrink government to the size where we can drown it in the bathtub. Those who oppose Social Security have always been a tiny fraction of Americans, but they have an oversized influence because they are generally people of great wealth. President Eisenhower astutely explained in a November 8, 1954 letter he wrote to his brother just who these opponents of Social Security are and what he thought of them. Quote, should any political party attempt to abolish Social Security and unemployment insurance, you would not hear of that party again in our political history. There is a tiny splinter group, of course, that believes you can do these things. Among them are H.L. Hunt, you possibly know his background, and a few other Texas oil millionaires, and an occasional politician or businessman from other areas. Their number is negligible, and they are stupid. End of quote from Dwight Eisenhower. Republican Dwight Eisenhower. Some members of that tiny splinter group are libertarians who want to be free of all constraint. Others are wealthy individuals who don't believe they need to pool their risk because they are wealthy enough to self-insure, and they don't want the cost associated with a collective program of insurance. Still, others are unenlightened business people who define their self-interest narrowly with no consideration for the common good and want to increase their profits and wealth by reducing the cost of mandatory contributions to government. And others are people who make their living from Wall Street and recognize that if people were not receiving Social Security, they would purchase more stocks, bonds, annuities, and other financial interests in the private market in an effort to protect their economic security. What unites all of these opponents is the desire to undo universal government-sponsored insurance in the form of Social Security and Medicare. People who share these views sought to defeat Social Security when it was first proposed, and when that proved unsuccessful to change its basic structure and function as described below. The history of Social Security shows a continuous chain of opposition, but with different actors over time, of course. Interestingly, in some cases, the most prominent opponents over time have been related. The progeny of some of the wealthy opponents in the 1930s are still fighting Social Security today. The grandfather of President George W. Bush, who sought to radically transform Social Security in 2005, was a man named Prescott Bush, a contemporary of President Roosevelt. He once remarked of Roosevelt, quote, the only man I truly hated lies buried in Hyde Park, end quote. Similarly, the father of one of the highly ideological Koch brothers, Charles and David, who have financed efforts aimed at dismantling Social Security, was a Texas newspaper publisher who used that position to rail against Social Security and other New Deal programs. Opponents and supporters have not fallen neatly into political party affiliation. Among the electorate, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents alike have always supported Social Security because they've understood how important it is to their economic security and to our nation. In addition, once Social Security was established, some Republican leaders like President Eisenhower have supported the program, at least in limited foundational size. 
In recent years, though, the Republican Party has endorsed proposals to dismantle Social Security, despite the claim made by virtually all Republican politicians that they support it. Moreover, as the mistaken view of Social Security as a drain on the federal budget and economy gained traction in the last few decades, some Democratic leaders have, perhaps unwittingly, pushed for changes that would undermine and weaken Social Security's protection as well. Nevertheless, though not all Democrats supported Social Security, nor all Republicans opposed it, Support for Social Security over its history has largely come from Democrats, opposition from Republicans. The truth about Social Security. Welcome back. Let me just finish this rant up and then I will pick up your phone calls. The question I'm asking is, where does the Republican Party go from here? But there's there there are some things to fill in. I was talking about how you know the Republican Party has basically rebranded themselves as the party of white supremacy and white nationalism. They're even reviving William Rehnquist's old Operation Eagle Eye, where where they would send white lawyers and uh, poll watchers into Black, Hispanic, and Native American polling places to challenge and threaten and intimidate their voters. In Texas, they're planning on, quote, building an army of 10,000 election workers and poll watchers, including some who will have the confidence and courage to go into black and brown communities to address alleged voter fraud. Right. So what we see now is that make America great again really means make America white again. And every white supremacist in America knows it and agrees with it. And the white evangelicals are totally on board with this as well. And this is really, and the point I wanted to make about all this is that this is really extraordinarily dangerous stuff. There was a piece in the New York Times yesterday where Holocaust survivor Sidney Zoltak said, and I quote, the diabolic plan to annihilate the Jews in Europe was established in small increments, way before the establishment of the concentration camps, the ghettos, the death camps, the mobile killing units. It started with words, end quote. Those were words that characterized Jews and gypsies and gay people and socialists as vermin, as invaders, as an infestation. Words like Donald Trump and his followers use regularly. And when the Nazis were in the streets in the 1930s, and when the Nazis were in the streets just a few years ago in Charlottesville, Virginia, they were quoting, chanting the same chant, Jews will not replace us. These were Donald Trump's very fine people. So here's where we get to the core of the question. You know, this, the first generation of majority non-white Americans, the first generation where more than half of all the people being born are not non-white, are now about the age to get into kindergarten. You know, white Americans are going to become a minority, and there's nothing that white people can do to stop that trend. So white Americans in the GOP are facing a choice. What are you going to do? Are you going to go down yelling and screaming and take a lot of lives with you and tear this country apart for your lost cause? Or are you going to start working for a country that actually realizes the vision of America's founding promise 240 years ago that all men are created equal, all persons are created equal? What are we going to do, Republicans? What are you all going to do? Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, what's on your mind today? to that, the Republican Party is so disgusting. There were eight congressmen viewing naked children with Gates. And I'd like to see Gates in handcuffs. Can the federales just go in to Dorrell, Trump's little 
place in Florida, they're having an insurrection persuade those women from the Heritage Foundation that helped with the insurrection are not surprising backing gates. They're having him speak in front of them. That makes me want to throw up. With Clarence Thomas's wife, she, she, her husband, she's probably a sexual deviant too. And then I want to just well, say, let's let, let's not get into personal attacks on on okay, people. Okay, I'm that sorry we don't, about that. You know, it's it's not I'm in sorry. there. There isn't. So yeah, okay. How those women could so, have gates in front of them when it's a 17 year old child? It's not a woman. And yeah. then, so I am with um, the Derek Chevron trial. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, there was a photo of him with Trump at a law enforcement party. He has a photo with Trump. And I think that the witness, Mr. McMillan, the six-year-old that broke down on the stand, I think he knew that. Because in one of Derek's recordings that they showed on the trial, when McMillan talks to Derek, one of his phrases is, oh, you're with the Trump base. So I wondered if he knew that that cop had a photo with Trump. But, um, wow. Yeah, it's possible, or you could just assume that if a white guy is killing a black guy in America, uh, you know, for uh, largely no reason other than that he's black, uh, I mean, this, keep in mind, this was over a counterfeit 20 which, yeah. I mean, literally the police could have given him a ticket and said show up in court. Or it could have been a bigger deal, but you don't kill people over passing a bad 20. There was no allegation that he was violent or that he was armed or anything else. He, he just was black. And so I think that it's fair to assume that somebody like Chauvin, whose name, by the way, uh, I don't know if he's related to the original Chauvin, who is a French guy, but that's the core, that's the root word of the word chauvinism. That's where it comes from, because that this guy Chauvin in France back 100 years ago was like, you know, a, a chauvinist. So anyhow, that, that he would be a white supremacist and a Trump supporter. Say that, say that again. What a gruesome death for over nine minutes. Uh, yeah. uh, those poor witnesses, I'm very proud of them for... They, they saved this trial with all their films. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Jessica, thank you. And in answer to your question, can the feds show up and, and arrest Gates while he's giving his speech to this women's group at Doral? Yeah, they can. And wouldn't that be a great theater? I'm guessing, though, that their calendar is far less political than that. They're going to do it when they have all the details. And, and Gates has now hired a criminal defense lawyer, so you can see where, the, where this is going. Rob in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Hey, Rob, what's up? Hey, Tom. First time I ever saw your show, I happened to accidentally hit my my controller when I was getting up, and you came on. And I got a couple of hmm. questions and some statements since I was I just caught it right at the Marjorie Taylor Greene portion. Mm-hmm. So since then, you've mentioned things like Mega making America white again, um, Charlottesville, uh, and how you know the fine people both are which are just disingenuous at best and just listening to you you're clearly smart enough to know that they're disingenuous but it doesn't matter when donald trump was asked explicitly to repudiate the apparent support 
of the Nazis and racists who were marching in Charlottesville saying Jews will not replace us. And this was in response to this great replacement thing that had gone viral on Facebook that said that George Soros was paying to move black people into white people's jobs in the United States. When, when that happened, Donald Trump in front of America said there's very fine people on both sides. There's very fine people among the protesters who are saying, yes, we need to take down the statues. And there's very fine people among the Nazis who are saying Jews will not replace us. That is that's a simple uh, historical fact, Rob. No, it's not. It's in fact, everything you just said is completely untrue. I watched the entire speech when asked and he explicitly said, and this is what's funny, because this is why it was brought up during the fake impeachment. He specifically said that there were very fine people on both sides. But he also said that there were thugs on both sides, to paraphrase. He said in his extemporaneous comments. No, when he said, oh, so when he said he absolutely condemned racism right then and there, that doesn't. In the speech that he read in the robotic monotone, he said nice words. And then when he was asked about it in his own voice, and we've seen this with Trump over and over and over again, where something horrible happens, he comes out and he gives a nice little speech as talking like a robot. And I can't even uh, badly imitate it. But Rob, you know, it's obvious that we're not going to come to any kind of an agreement on this. Was there some kind of point you were trying to make? Well, my point is, Tom, is that after listening to your show for just the last half hour, you seem to be far smarter than than what you're giving your audience. You're you're disingenuous at best. Okay, I get it, Rob. Your your your, your critique of my show is, uh, I was going to say, appreciated. It's actually, I think, I I'll just I'll just leave it at that. There's there's no reason to respond to that. Jennifer in Seattle. Hey, Jennifer, what's on your mind today? Well, hi there, Tom. That's a tough act to follow. But uh, I just want to say that um, I appreciate what you're talking about, the Republican Party and how just it's so, you know, cravenly the the lowest thing they can reach for. And it's just gotten worse over the last 10 years. And obviously, I mean, it's racism is a disease here that we need to deal with. And until we do, we're still going to have these clowns. But I do want to point out that, um, you know, I think the Republicans are still able to seduce some first-generation Americans as, hey, mm-hmm. we're the party of winners, rich people. Hey, join us. You don't want to go with the demos. The Dems, just they just give things away, and you want to be prosperous, right? That's why you came to America. And I was really startled to see, I think it was um, compared to 2016, wasn't it like 32%, I think, of Latino or self-described Latino men voted um, for Trump in 2016, but then it went up by four percentage points, I think, this last time around. So, and it's not just self-described Latino men, but there are some first-generation Americans who just, hey, you know, this guy speaks for me, maybe for men more so than women. But I think we just, I think for Democrats, this is a point that we need to take the long game and continue talking about family-friendly policies and educating our children. Because if we can educate the next generation to see what's really going on, that that's just kind of a shell game and that we're we're not just on this earth to make money and and there's, you know, more that we can can do and advocate. I think... I think we could we really have a shot. So I appreciate your 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 analysis of where the Republican Party is going. 
Thank you, Jennifer. And with regard to Hispanic men, uh, we had a, a fellow call in the other day who identified himself as a Hispanic man and uh, said that what was going on is that virtually all of the Hispanics in this country are Catholics and, the, and that there's a massive amount of Spanish language programming going on, particularly in areas of large Hispanic populations. Hundreds of radio stations now broadcasting in Spanish. And, they, and, and right-wing foundations are sponsoring uh, Hispanic, uh, Spanish language versions of Rush Limbaugh. And some of them are nationally syndicated, others are local, but there's this huge right-wing radio infrastructure that has been built, and there is no left-wing corollary to it. Um, Spanish language uh, radio programming tends to either be, if it's commentary and news, it's right-wing, and otherwise it's music. And uh, so that's influence in the situation. And the Catholicism, you know, and the abortion issue specifically with regard to the Catholicism. And, uh, you know, these are tough things and they're, they're, and they're, and they're going to be tough things to take on. So uh, anyway, uh, excellent points all and thank you for the call. Daniel in Charlotte. Hey, Daniel, you got a, a, a quick one here. I, I have about a minute. Well, OK. Uh, good to be on the program. I just had a question about one of your favorite presidents, Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the so, question is? You know, yeah. So statistically, the Reagan uh, presidency was a disaster. You've been over this multiple times. And I've been reading uh, Rick Perlstein's Reaganland. I just wanted some questions of what you think, um, how he didn't receive the same backlash Jimmy Carter did when um, the economy went awry. Because you see that the uh, unemployment wars, privatization, left holes in the country, as well as outsourcing. Why wasn't there a voter backlash uh, against the Republican Party in the 80s? Because there was a, and I was there, right? Because there was this sense that Reagan had some new ideas, that inflation and stagflation were hurting the country, that that the the boom of the Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson years was fading, and that we needed to try something new. And Reagan came along and said, "I got something new to sell you. It may be painful. It's going to take some readjustment. It's going to take some difficulty. We got to wipe out these unions, you know, et cetera, et cetera." And there were just enough people willing to go along. Along with it, that that's what happened, Daniel. I recall it well. Daniel, thanks for the call. Listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It was one of the most spectacularly successful sales pitches in my lifetime, certainly. And apparently, it was just a clone of what happened in 1920 with Warren Harding. Let's take a digression into science here. Gracie Olmsted. Gracie Olmsted is on the line with us. New York Times author, journalist, contributor to the book Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. And Gracie Olmsted, G-R-A-C-Y-O-L-M-S-T-E-A-D is uh, Gracie's Twitter handle. Gracie, welcome to the program. Can our food systems be fixed? Well, I definitely think so. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on the show. Thank you. So how do we do it? What do we, first of all, what's wrong with our food systems? And then, you know, what do we need to do to fix that? Well, one thing that we're seeing in the United States is that our food system has become incredibly efficient, which is a good thing. But that, that means that there's a lot of bottlenecks, a lot of monopolies, and other issues that make it really hard to get food from the farm to the consumer. And so even as we've built a very efficient food system, we've built one that is incredibly brittle 
And that oftentimes means that farmers at the local level don't have a lot of diversity on their farms. They don't have a lot of resilience built into their farming models. And it's very hard for them to actually interact with the people who are buying their products. And so I argue that I think we need to do a better job of bringing back local and regional agribusinesses, kind of trying to fight some of these monopolies we see springing up around seed companies, slaughterhouses, and other food processors, and really encouraging farmers to grow a more diverse array of crops so that they're really strengthening the health of their soil as well. So how do we do that in a system that has been largely monopolized by giant seed and, and pesticide and herbicide, you know, Monsanto type mm-hmm. companies, that the wholesale distribution of food is monopolized by a handful of companies, Cargill, ADM, et cetera, that the processing and sale of, of food products is now dominated by fewer than a dozen companies, uh, control most of the products in your average supermarket. How do we do that? Well, I definitely think that we're going to need to take a multi-pronged approach. There's definitely some national policy solutions that we need to start considering. Senator Cory Booker has actually aimed to take on some of these harmful agricultural monopolies through some bills that are aimed at antitrust legislation. And then the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission could also play a role by directing antitrust officers to break up the most harmful agribusiness mergers. Uh, The FTC specifically could establish fair competition rules that could also make a difference. But as Philip Howard and others have noted, we have so much monopolization that unless you see some of those moves start to spring up, it would be very difficult for competition, real healthy competition, to re-enter the marketplace. Yeah, so it seems like a great place to start. Gracie Olmsted, the New York Times uh, author, uh, uprooted, recovering the legacy of the places we've left behind, journalist and contributor. Twitter handle is Gracie Olmsted. Gracie, thanks a lot. This is good food for thought. And I really appreciate you dropping by and sharing your perspective with us. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. Good speaking with you. Uh, continuing our conversations here, Stephanie in Kankakee, Illinois. Hey, Stephanie, what's on your mind today? Well, we down here in Pembroke Township have mm-hmm. uh, the largest black you know, concentration of organic farmers in the state. The really? governor has summoned, yes, we have probably around 150. Some are larger than others. We've been selling our food directly to our buyers, cutting out the middleman. Even though big ag farmers own 26% of our town, we're fighting to keep our town from big ag taking over, chopping down our trees, clear-cutting our ecosystem. But we go straight to, like, Northwestern wants to buy our blueberries. We go straight to Northwestern. Cook County wants to buy our vegetables. We're going straight to Cook County. We, got, uh, we go straight to the food pantries to give our fresh vegetables for the homeless. We go straight, so we cut out the middleman. We don't even play mm-hmm. with them. So, and with this billion dollars coming to black farmers, we're utilizing that to start more people farming down here. So the mm-hmm. only way to deal with these monopolies is to not need them. When, you know, when I was growing up the, the, in Chicago, the vegetable man came from Pembroke. And he ran out to his vegetable car, and all the women would come out, and I was in the 60s when a lot of mothers didn't work, and get their fresh vegetables and watermelons and things and other melons. So... Mm-hmm. If we want to do this and stop these monopolies, we've got to not need them. 
we've got to start getting small farms back in place where a farmer does not take food no more than 60 to 100 miles away from his farm. That means he can get it there without having to pay right. a trucking company. And then the trucking company got to pay the warehouse. And then the warehouse got to pay. You know, it's, it's just too much to get food to people. When we can do what we yep. did back in the 40s and 30s and 50s and had small farmers feed people within 100 miles of them or less. How have you been able to successfully maintain small ag and organic ag in the face of all the pressure from the big companies to to basically conform to factory farming models? Well, like I said, our problem is we have big ag farmers who have taken over our community. We ignore them. Mm. So far, they haven't come after us. But mm-hmm. if they come after us, then we are ready to fight. I have a right to sell my greens. So we we actually didn't get to to pick over a thousand pounds of greens because the weather caught us, mm-hmm. and we didn't have pickers. So what we do is, you know, if I want to sell to you, Tom, they can try to interfere with that, but that's between me and you. Yeah. So what we do is, and the governor is on the side now to to, to promote more black farmers to get back into um, agriculture. And it, we have mm-hmm. people down here with 200, 100 acres. If you don't want to farm it, we're trying to find people who you can rent it to who will turn it back to a farm. Yeah. So we got yeah. another it program that's paying people's t- taxes who are losing their land for taxes. So we got a program that pays the taxes for six years, but they got to grow something on it. That's great. So we're Stephanie, working on I'm, the ground roots. Uh, yeah, forgive my, my interruption. We just have about 50 seconds left. Louise and I, for years, have subscribed to a local service here in Portland where organic growers, they throw together a box of food every week and deliver it to our house. And it costs us about 40, 50 bucks a week. Is that the sort of thing that, that works for, that supports organic farmers also? I'm assuming it does. Yes, it is, it is the one thing that supports organic farmers. Because these people cannot get a hold of your list of people. They can't stop you. And you can ship to who you want to. We got we to gotta cut that middleman out. The warehouse, the big ag farmers, Monsanto, people like that. Only way we can do it is to not need them. Yeah, yeah. And that means uh, building that relationship with the individual consumers, whether it's a restaurant that wants to buy your product or a school that wants it or, or an individual home. Stephanie, thank you. Yes. Thanks for the education. It's great talking with you. And thanks for listening to WCPT. I appreciate it. We'll be back picking up your phone calls. A lot on the table here, you know, from taxes to the Chauvin trial to uh, guns to uh, organic agriculture. We can discuss it all. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. To also, you know, this question of malaise, as I hate to use that word because it was used against Jimmy Carter, but, you know, of, of, you know, the damage done to us by Trump. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, 
you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Our book today is The 31-Day Food Revolution, Heal Your Body, Feel Great, and Transform Your World by Ocean Robbins, with a foreword by Joel Furman, MD. This is from the introduction. Let me call it like it is. We live in a toxic food culture. It's led us to epidemic rates of obesity, heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, and Alzheimer's. Things have gotten so bad that most people think it's normal to have at least a few extra pounds around the middle, to depend on an ever-growing supply of prescription medications, and to lose a little more memory and mobility with every passing year. This may be typical, but it sure as heck doesn't have to be normal. Eating food is mandatory, but suffering from brain fog, living with ever-declining health, and feeling like crap are not. The fact is that right now, hundreds of millions of people are hurting from diseases that never, ever needed to happen in the first place. Dangerous changes have been made to our food supply in just the last 25 years that impact how your food is grown and processed and how safe it is to eat. The status quo is driving small farmers out of business, forcing animals to live in deplorable conditions, and producing food that's making us sick. The medical industry and the processed food industry are earning trillions of dollars in a system that's devastating lives and threatening the very future of life on our planet. It's my mission to help put an end to this madness by sharing the truth about food and helping eaters put it into action. That's, where I found, that's why I founded the 500,000 plus member Food Revolution Network, and it's why I wrote the book you now hold in your hands. In some ways, I might seem like a pretty unlikely food revolutionary. After all, in 1953, my grandfather, Irving Robbins, joined with his brother-in-law, Bert Baskin, to found the 31 Flavors Ice Cream Company, Baskin Robbins. In case anyone on the planet missed the memo, we're now pretty clear that ice cream is not a health food. But back in the 1950s, as my grandpa was pumping out delicious flavors by the dozen, not much was known about the connection between food and health. Up until then, most people seemed content with three flavors, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. My grandfather was a consummate entrepreneur, and he set his heart on offering consumers many more options, 31 to be exact, one for each day of the month. My dad, John, grew up with an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool. Sometimes he even ate ice cream for breakfast. He was groomed from early, early childhood to one day run the family company. My dad's youthful innovations included Jamocha Almond Fudge, one of our company's most iconic flavors to this day, and the rollout to all the stores of the famous Pink Spoons that enabled customers to enjoy free samples. But in 1967, my grandpa's brother-in-law and business partner, Bert Baskin, became very ill. His doctors informed him he was dying of heart disease. I never knew my great uncle Bert because he passed on a short time later, six years before I was born. But I do know that he was one of the greatest entrepreneurs in American history. He had tremendous wealth, a business he enjoyed, and a family he loved, and he ate a lot of ice cream. And in the end, he lost his life and his health at the age of 54. Grandpa Irv was faced with a choice. He could sell the company for a large sum of money, or he could keep the company in the business and take on my dad, then about to turn 20, as a business partner. Grandpa Irv chose to invite his son aboard. But my dad declined his father's invitation, walking away from Baskin-Robbins and from any access to or dependence on 
the family wealth. For him, it was a choice for integrity, and it's a choice I've always respected. My dad had seen ice cream bring smiles to a lot of people, but he also knew that unhealthy foods could fuel devastating consequences, and he didn't want to spend his life selling a product that might contribute to more people suffering and dying before their time. So he left a product, a path that was practically paved with gold and ice cream to follow his own rocky road. My dad had suffered from polio as a child and grew up frequently fatigued and ill. In the 1960s, he fell in love with my mom in Berkeley, and the two of them set out on a healthy living path. They stopped eating processed foods, they gave up ice cream, and they based their diets on vegetables and whole natural foods. As my dad's health and energy returned, he and my mom moved to a remote little island off the coast of British Columbia, Canada, where they built a one-room log cabin, grew most of their own food, practiced yoga and meditation for several hours a day, and named their kid Ocean. They say that, um, that they almost named me Kale. I'm glad they took the more conservative route on this one. In any case, we did eat a lot of kale, along with cabbage, carrots, onions, broccoli, turnips, Swiss chard, and many other vegetables that my parents grew, plus brown rice, sprouts, buckwheat, and beans. For a treat, once in a blue moon, we'd have a few drops of organic blackstrap molasses. I think we went through about a bottle a year. Though my childhood diet was Spartan and my family lived on very little money, I grew up feeling rich in health. I became an accomplished distance runner, completing my first marathon at the age of 10. My dad went on to study the impact of food choices and to share what he was learning. His landmark bestsellers, including Diet for a New America, inspired millions of people and helped to galvanize the modern health food movement. The media was tickled by the notion of a would-be ice cream heir becoming a healthy eating spokesperson and called him the rebel without a cone and the prophet of nonprofit. Tens of thousands of people wrote my dad letters, often by hand, sharing how his work had changed, sometimes even saved their lives. One of the lives his work impacted, as fate would have it, was that of my own Grandpa Irv. Now, my grandpa had been pretty mad with my dad walked away from the ice cream company. He and my dad went years without speaking. But then something remarkable happened. In 1989, Grandpa Irv, then in his early 70s, was suffering from diabetes, heart disease, and weight problems. He'd always eaten the modern diet with a double scoop of ice cream on top. His cardiologist told him he didn't have long to live unless he changed his diet. And then the good doctor handed him a copy of my dad's book, the book 31 Day Food Revolution by Ocean Robbins. Patty in Pompano Beach, Florida. Hey, Patty, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Um, along the lines of a little bit of that uh, lady with the farm, our neighborhood and the neighboring neighborhood has put up a mini food pantry, which is kind of like those lending libraries where you put books in and you can take books out. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the neighbors have mm -hmm. gotten together, and we keep it stocked with, um, you know, canned soup and cereals and stuff and baby food and all kinds of dry goods like beans and rice and peanut butter and oatmeal. And we can put in fresh veggies. It's the people that host it are just homes they uh, they have it out in front of their house just like the lending libraries and have even put in like a small mini fridge where you can put in some refrigerated goods whatever and anybody wow. can come by and take what they need and anybody can drop off and we keep it pretty well stocked when we go on that uh, next door um, dot com neighborhood thing or dot org and we'll mm -hmm. mention whether you know like hey the pantry's empty anybody want to come and drop stuff off 
and I get buy one get ones at the store or pick up an extra bag of carrots and potatoes and just you know whenever I once a week or something I just go down there and stock it up and sometimes it's full and sometimes it's empty. Wow. Was this organized by an individual who just had a great idea? Was it based on a website? Was there a, you know, some, a local political person or organization or, or the city or county involved in any way? How did this happen? I think it was just the neighborhood association. We were talking about how can we help with the hungry in the neighborhood and food pantries. And instead of having to go mm-hmm. someplace downtown, People can just walk or, or, you know, like, it's just a a local thing in our neighborhood. And it's quite well utilized. One of them, actually both of them are out in front of private people's homes. They just used a little part of their front of their, their swale there to set up this little lending library of food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that is great. Something nice so that people don't have to drive across town and stand in line at a food pantry. They can just walk. Is it principally designed to help people who live in your neighborhood? I mean, how how do you deal with the people in the neighborhood who might be concerned about, you know, it's kind of the NIMBY thing, you know, about, oh, my God, homeless people are going to come in our neighborhood or something like that? Um, I don't think that's really... uh, We do have homeless people that, you know, like could take advantage of it. We have some people that could possibly just go clean it out and then sell it, you know, out of out of their home. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're risking that. But if somebody's doing that, they need, they need it more than we do. So, Yeah, that's I, that's my sentiment. I, there was a, a, a piece posted a couple of days ago, a sign from a, a Little Caesars uh, franchise that they put on their trash can that said, dear person digging for food, if you're hungry enough that you're digging through our trash, please come into the restaurant. We'll give you a couple slices of pizza and a glass of water at no charge. Yeah, I've like, I've wow. even you know I've even taped like five dollars to the back of some mac and cheese, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and if they there pick up the box they'll get, you know, they'll get to have a little bit extra. That's sweet. Patty, thank you for the call. Thanks for the information. It's great to hear from you. Thank you. Gene in Somerville, South Carolina. Gene, UFOs? Yes, yes, sir. I'm ready to go. Okay. What's on your mind about flying saucers? Well, it's been what now? 74 years? Since Roswell? It's been 74 years since the first sighting in 1947. Mm-hmm. And the Roswell incident. Right. And nothing has been told to the public about what's going on. And uh, what we don't don't know can hurt us. And on top of that, uh, not being able to discover what's what a UFO is, and they see see them all the time. I'm talking about Navy pilots, airline pilots, chiefs mm-hmm. of police. Well, uh, you know, the Navy did release that. the videotape of those Navy pilots who were chasing those UFOs. As I recall, it was around California and off the coast of California. Could be wrong on that, but the videos were pretty compelling. And the conversation that the pilots were having with air traffic control was pretty startling. You know, I mean, they were just coming right out and saying, there's, there's this thing, it's shaped like a cigar, it's flying faster than we can. Oop, it just turned. You know, stuff like that. I mean, it was like, whoa, what's going on here? Well, the one I saw out of Lincolnton, North Carolina, it's been about a decade ago, it was silvery mm-hmm. looking and cigar shaped. And the thing was hmm. huge. And I hmm. stopped my car. I'd, I'd seen it going down the highway, 321. 
And I, I told my wife, I'm going to stop the car and get out and see if this is not a reflection off of my windshield. I did, mm-hmm. and there it was when I got out of the car. I got back into my car, and I was afraid to because I was afraid it disappeared. And sure enough, got back in my car, looked up through the windshield, and it was gone. And something that uh, big, I can't see how it could take off in that quick time. You know yeah. what I mean? The government has promised us for years that they were going to reveal to the public what it is. And we still what still have Wright-Patterson Air Force Base where they mm-hmm. claim they have a, a ship in there and the bodies and all this stuff. But they're not going to yeah. disclose that to the public. Why not? Yeah, I, I think we're entitled to know, Gene. I'm with you. I, you know, I've, I'm, twice in my life, I've seen things that I couldn't explain that were at least unidentified flying objects for me. Once was with uh, Nigel, an old dear friend of mine who's also uh, kind of our webmaster. And, and that was in the UK. And then when I was a kid with my dad. Anyhow, Donald in Berkeley. Hey, Donald, what's on your mind today? Donald from the movie Heist, who stole the American dream. And yeah. uh, <laughs> remember that one? I do. Yes, and thank you so much for your help on the film. So, uh, connecting oh, the it dots. It was my pleasure to narrate it. Thank you, Tom. Connecting the dots about what you were talking about in terms of corporate America and the GOP and racism, we mm-hmm. came out with another film, which in a sense was a sequel to Heist, called The Long Shadow, which is mm-hmm. a, a long look at the history of slavery and white supremacy in the United States and how the yeah. South has been controlling the politics of this country ever since, right up till now. Yeah, people can go to thelongshadowfilm.com. That's the website, thelongshadowfilm.com. Mm-hmm. You can find us on Facebook as well. And it's, a, uh-huh. it, it's really a, 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 an incredibly powerful film, in some ways even stronger than Heist, because it yeah. really yeah. gets to the core issue of this country from its inception. And the, the other point I wanted to make was about Trump and the pandemic and the doctors who were surrounding him. It's mm-hmm. my contention as a retired physician that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks should have resigned their positions in April of last year, once Trump went berserk and deviated from what any normal physician would be doing. And they had a, a, a duty to tell the American people the truth. And they were just standing up there on the platform, enabling him. And that allowed 550,000 Americans to die. So from my point of view, when we take the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm, you have a duty to your patients, if you're a public health physician, to inform the public about what is the truth. They did not well, do that. I think that. Fauci did a pretty good job of being I, consistent I in his messaging I think he was only to the point played. that Trump was trashing him. Yeah. Well, uh, the way you do it is you resign. You say, this man is a lunatic. This man is going to kill hundreds of thousands of Americans. And I can't yeah. stand here and allow that to happen. And the same is true I get it. That, you know, Deborah Burks kept trying to get along to go along, and I think that has really badly tarnished her reputation. Um, <laughs> to say but, the least. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I get your perspective, Donald. On the other hand, I'm more charitable toward Fauci. I, I understand. I'm skeptical of Burks. But <laughs> I'm it, a back to the long shadow, we have. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We have just 30 seconds, Donald. I'm, how do I watch the long shadow? Is it available on any of the streaming services? Yes, it is. It's, it's on all the streaming platforms, and people can watch it through their public library at Canopy, K A N O P Y dot com, which is uh-huh. the streaming service for all the public libraries in the United States. Oh, you that's can watch great. It and, free and the movie. And the movie that I narrated is there as well? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Both films are there. They're both doing well. They did very well during the pandemic. Great. Donald, thank you so much. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 